you guys. Let's let's jump back in a little bit more than an hour, and then we're done. If you're able to hang with that, and we've got four more sections to cover, but they do not require too much time. For, uh, the, the sixth topic is just called. I'm not sure what page in your notes. Theological interpretation, a theological analysis of texts. I was just having a helpful conversation with Jackie, and, and one of the things that we are talking about is that tension, and it's different, it seems, sounds like here than in the U.S. But some people, you know, love studying the Bible and really think they can do so quite well, but they don't have the larger theological categories. Honestly, they, they don't have the confessional lens with which to read it. Others might really like the theology of things, but then feel a bit intimidated by the actual text itself. And what's, what, what, number one, what's needed is a centered position of both. But there's also something beautiful about having truth about God, a confessional lens, which is then helping you read the Bible and also just letting the Bible then be connecting with the theology that you know. Why is, well, I, I even asked the question in your notes, why is theological interpretation of the Bible an issue? Well, to be honest with you, since about 1800, the modern approach, certainly Western approach, to reading the Bible has been very scientific. It's been so scientific that there was a major split. I mean, this is a long story that I'm not going to go into, but there was almost a divorce, so to speak, between the university and the church. So that the academic reading of the Bible and the churchly reading of the Bible looked very, very different. You even see this division in schools. Like you see somebody teaching Old Testament and not New Testament. Or biblical studies and not theology. Or even within New Testament, teaching Gospels and not Paul's epistles. Like all this fragmentation and compartmentalization has really made the book be emphasized, the Bible be emphasized in the last couple hundred years as an ancient text rather than the living Word of God. Now, again, we want to hold both intention. We want to acknowledge by His common grace that God pre prepared and inspired a Bible with human thoughts and human words and human mind and human examples, etc., that use our reason and our logic and our ability to understand stories, etc. At the same time, it is the living, breathing Word of God that speaks to grand truths that extend across biblical books that cannot, therefore the Bible cannot simply be read as any other book. But, but we want to be able to read the Bible theologically. So, so what are we to do? Well, one thing is we can't reject the benefits of historical research. I, I hope that you saw that my reading of John 3 and Nicodemus, I didn't reject theological at all. I, I actually used the background information to show how John 3 declares the gospel beautifully. But what we need to do then is try to bring together our historical research and our confessional understanding of God's truth and God's Word and have that be co-participating in the readings that we do. So as you think about the process of theological analysis, we, I, I, already, I already at the beginning of our time this, this morning, I gave you this kind of contextualization focus, but, but let's talk through the process of theological analysis. So some of these theological themes. So questions that you would ask of the text. Questions that you would, lenses you would use to see the key things in the text in three areas. And there, you could divide this up more, more narrowly. But three big areas is the Bible is going to talk about the nature of God. 
the nature of humanity and the nature of redemption. Under the nature of God, maybe we would ask the question, how does this text fit into the larger biblical story about the triune God? So we could go to John 3 and say, it shows he will confront sin directly, right? He will engage with sin, but it also clearly shows his sacrificial loving nature. Like that, I mean, the word love was used in verse 16. God loved the world. How about even Luke 15? What does it say about the triune God? It reflects the loving forgiveness of the Father, the radical nature with which the human Father received and rejoiced. The Son is displayed by the radical way God the Father through Christ and the Spirit receives you into the fold. In the same way, you can see the firmness of God rebuking and pushing against a self-righteousness that can so easily coexist in the life of a believer. You can see God's expectation of holiness and of appropriate response and worship in the Christian life. The character of the triune God would be something, if God is the main character in Scripture, and I would say He is, how does this passage reveal God's character, God's conduct, or God's concerns? So every text can ask the question, how does this text reveal God's character, God's conduct, or God's concerns? And maybe emphasizing the fact that God is the main character is important. I don't know what happens in your context as much, but I know it's real, real common in my American, especially broader evangelical context, for people to read the Bible and think that humanity is the main character of the stories. So even a good example of this is the story of David and Goliath, right? And it is so easy for people to assume that they are the David. And the Goliath is their problem that they're facing. And notice how they've made themselves not just the main character, which, by the way, hint, 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 the main character is always God, but they've also therefore made themselves, because they're the main character, they're also the main hero. And if you could use David and Goliath's story as a way to try to describe how you're going to fight a difficult boss at work or a difficult situation at home or something difficult financially, and you'll find your stones to throw at the giant beast and see how God will have you rescue him. But, but to be honest with you, if, just in short, who are you in the story of David and Goliath? You're the Israelites standing on the side. And who's the David? Who's the main character? The, the chosen, un, kind of a son that wouldn't have seemed to be the most worthy picked, but the beloved son of the father who goes out and destroys those who confront God and his people. It is Jesus Christ. And that's not just a Sunday school kind of reading. That's to say that every biblical story will ultimately have God the triune God, as its main character. And that's just a wonderful way of just beginning to learn how to read the Bible. And I'm hoping, I mean, I, to be honest with you, even during break time, I was thinking a little about kind of, I hope that because of this, the text that I selected, you are not feeling more distance from the text as if you have to have a PhD in order to be able to read Luke 15 and John 3. I'm hoping it's opening your eyes to just simple reminders or insights into the exciting challenge of closely focusing on the text, having some right priorities and guidelines as you try to walk through God's Word, knowing that the perspicuity of Scripture is true, 
Like God, the main things in Scripture have been clearly stated so no one can miss that. And these other aspects are right there that with some time and some focus and some study and participation with the Spirit Himself that you will obtain those. The nature of humanity, a helpful category here. Well, here's the question. How does this text fit into the larger biblical story about humanity, right? And even with the example of Nicodemus, we could say something like, wow, we may not come, we may, our, our name might not be conquering one, but our lives are rebellious against God in, from birth. We challenge God. The doctrine of sin would tell us that, right? And the way we live our lives about us, and, and we use God like an app. I can do all things through Christ for my God app, right? We try to better our lives in some way. That is an affront to a holy God who is worthy of all our devotion and all our worship. And we can see our own fallen condition. Scripture exposes our fallen condition. That's a good term. What is the fallen condition communicated by the text? Like even, even Philippians Philippians 4.13, right? What's the fallen condition? The fallen condition is that we put more weight in our circumstances to satisfy us than the God who satisfies. So notice how every text, what's the fallen condition? What's the fallen condition of John 3? What's the fallen condition of Luke 15? The fallen condition of Luke 15 is that we as the older brothers can be judgmental and rebellious against other people to whom God has shown His grace and favor. Because we make it about us. If we really made it about God, we'd rejoice when we see the glory of God redeeming people and bringing them in the fold. But if we make it about us, we want our power. We want our control. We want the honor. How does the text describe our fallen condition? By fallen condition, I mean any aspect of human nature that requires God's grace. Even if it is indirect, every passage in the Bible points out some aspect of our fallenness and some aspect of God's remedy. The fallen condition might be an individual sin. It could even be corporate sin. Like I think the, I think the Luke 15 rebuke would not just be for me to think for myself as much as it might be true regarding judgmentalism. I think my entire church should be rebuked by Luke 15. Finally, nature of redemption. This question would be, how does this text fit into the larger biblical story of redemptive history? How does it show God's redemptive provisions, redemptive solutions? How does, it, how does Scripture point us to Christ? What is the passage's redemptive purpose? The reason this is important is that we read the Scriptures redemptively so that we will apply the Scriptures redemptively. So you ask the question, how does this text point me to Christ? For example, here's some biblical genres where this would happen. The law anticipates, the Old Testament law anticipates Christ by exposing our hearts and persuading us of our need of a Savior. The promises in Scripture anticipate Christ by kindling a longing at numerous levels that Jesus can ultimately fulfill. The wisdom literature in the Old Testament compels us to look for Him for meaning and for the ability to live wisely. I mean, I preached through Ecclesiastes and the, the, one of the thrusts of the book I, I got out of it that I shared with our church is how Ecclesiastes is challenging us to find our satisfaction in Jesus. 
And is it not tempting to find satisfaction in your job, in your beauty, in your love life, or your family, in the work that you do? I mean, it is so easy for us to have our identity and therefore our satisfaction in those things and not to be satisfied in Christ. The Psalms and the prophets often speak with the voice of Christ, anticipating His own anguish and exaltation. The Old Testament characters look forward to a prophet greater than Moses, a priest greater than Aaron, a great king greater than David. Just read the book of Hebrews and you can see all those things anticipatedly described. You see how we look for the redemptive solution? So that's kind of nuancing. Again, I started this morning by giving you context, content, contextualization. I mentioned some of these things and we're just spending some more time looking at those. Ultimately, what would be helpful in light of this bounded meaning is to generally speaking, for the purpose of maybe your own reading, but more so maybe if you're leading a Bible study or preaching and teaching in some way, to try to come up with something called the theological big idea. Like, what is kind of the... And it doesn't have to be perfectly cumulative because we can all agree that there could be several things that a text meaning might be trying to communicate. But ultimately, as you're trying to share God's Word with somebody, let's say in a Bible study, you're directing the leading of the teaching. Try to find the theological big idea. And I, I think I give in your notes, yeah, I do, kind of six things to help you develop that. Some, some, it, a, a theological big idea is these six things. First of all, it's faithful to the passage. It, 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 it fits and contributes to what the text is saying. Like you're, you're finding it more toward the center. Second, it's God-centered rather than man-centered or moralistic. So, David and Goliath, if you made it about you and your job, wrong. All right? If you make it about something to do with man or morality or what you need to do, wrong. It's about God. It's about God. Third, it relates to the big idea. It relates the big idea to the larger story of Scripture. So whatever the thrust is, you're able to connect it to the larger story of the whole Bible. You're seeing how that passage fits in the larger story of the whole Bible. John 3 is easy. God loved the world. Like John 3.16, right after Nicodemus' encounter, is describing the love of God that the rest of Scripture declares. Fourth, it's true for our present chapter in God's story. That as you contextualize it, the theological big idea aligns with where we're at now in redemptive history. And this is especially important if you're preaching from the Old Testament, reading in the Old Testament, that you must communicate in such a way that aligns with the New Covenant. If the Old Testament passage was pointing to and promising Christ, that now you say, and now we have the benefits of Christ, life through Christ and in the Spirit, belongs to us in the new covenant now. Fifth, that it should be for general application. The statement will not be bound to the time, people, and events of the passage. It will have a broader application and fuller theological development. This, this is hedging us toward contextualizing as you ap apply the text, but that you're wanting the main thrust of the text to kind of land in your cultural context. And even, even as Tazar was talking about earlier, like just like it fits a particular issue or need in among the people right now. And you try to bring it to them. And finally, the, generally the big idea should have God as the subject and use present tense verbs. Don't say God wanted because it's a past biblical text. Say God wants you to find contentment in Him. 
Don't say God wanted Paul to be content. Say God wants you to be content even when you have something, when, when something is lacking that you want or need. Let's talk about interpretation and the Spirit. Uh, this is an interesting topic. I mean, we've kind of hit on this a little bit. I get the feeling that in this context, this, this kind of issue can, even if it's not explicitly discussed, implicitly people are thinking through or assuming particular participation with the Spirit as they read the Bible. Maybe some of the reader response things that I talked about earlier can bump into this. Let me, uh, let, me, let me give you two denials first. First denial. The first denial. So I'm denying these things are true. Meaning, meaning is not the product of the encounter between the text and the Spirit-led reader. So I am saying that meaning is not the, the product of the encounter between the text and the Spirit-led reader. The Spirit doesn't create new meaning. The Spirit develops meaning. What I'm trying to avoid is a dichotomy between the text that the Spirit inspired and the work of the Spirit in the reader. All that the Spirit is trying to do is facilitate the work that the Spirit has already begun. When the Spirit wrote God's Word, it began to do the work of bringing to you its message. It's not as if the Spirit wrote the Word of God and then is no longer interested in facilitating that own work. The Spirit-led reader becomes convinced of the Bible's divine message, is illuminated by the text's original meaning for his or her context, and is conformed to the interest of the text. I'll summarize that for you later in a minute, but I, but I, but I want, you to, want you to hear that. Second denial, meaning is not controlled by the reception of the community. There is a big push in at least in American academic settings for kind of community readings that we as a community kind of guided by the Spirit read the Bible our way. One major way that this is happening is regard to sexuality. So that new, arguably leading of the Spirit in the church has guided it to see that, that it's denouncing and denial of homosexuality in Scripture was actually wrong, and now the Spirit is telling the church that it's actually okay. That's a very common reading in academic and certain denominations in my country, in the U.S. That would be to assume that the Spirit of God is talking to a community in a way different from how the Spirit of God wrote the text. Listen, the Spirit is not doesn't have multiple personalities. The same Spirit that inspired and guided the text of God's Word is always and consistently working to bring it and conform it and to impress it upon our lives. So here's uh, a definition and two affirmations. And I think I have the definition there. So to me, this is helpful. Here's the definition. The Spirit-led reader becomes what? convinced of the Bible's divine message. Like the first way the Spirit works is to make you love His Word. It convinces you of the significance of God's Word. Did you know that's a work of the Spirit? A work of the Spirit is actually to have you... The more you make God's Word a big deal in your life, the more the Spirit is actively engaging you to His Word. 
So the first step that you'll see is this growing desire for the Word. When I come to church like this and I hear of your expository preaching and the centrality of God's Word in this church, I am hearing of a Spirit-led church. Please don't just divine Spirit and Spirit-led by a one or two miraculous gifts that for some reason are always exaggerated anytime we talk about the Spirit. The clearest example of the power and the work of the Spirit is people who take God's Word seriously. That is the clearest example. Ironically, some of the people who claim an emphasis on the Spirit do so in contradiction to the sincerity and and seriousness of the Word itself by not taking its own Word seriously, but focusing on so-called miraculous workings of the Spirit. I'm not trying to challenge or even discuss the whole extra kind of miraculous work of the Spirit. I'm just trying to say at a larger level, one of the most miraculous works of the Spirit is, first of all, conversion, saving you from the death of your dead dead in your sin, but secondly, that drawing you to God's Word, submitting you to it. So the Spirit-led reader becomes convinced that the Bible's divine message, get this, is illuminated by the text's original meaning for his or her context. Now, now that middle, so that second one, not the convinced, but the illuminated, that's really what we've been doing today. Like, it, that's where the Spirit helps you understand the context, the content, and even the contextualization. I am not trying to say that you don't need the common grace of God. Your mind, books, school, seminary, study. No, that was all part of the Spirit-endowed common grace that every person has that they should use as they read the Bible. But what I'm trying to say is the same Spirit that wrote the book and collectively, canonically, in His providence, provided the book accessible to you, is now participating with you. Again, illuminating what the text already says. Not against common grace, not pitting your common grace against special grace, but facilitating your your common grace to work in ways that are natural and yet Spirit-led. The last is that a Spirit-led reader becomes conformed to the interest of the text. So please, again, see the miraculous nature of this. You, you aren't just drawn to the text. You aren't just supported in your reading of the text. You actually have the Spirit forming you to obey it. Now, that is miraculous. I would just, I, I get frustrated when the only thing people can think about with the Spirit is tongues or prophecies and not just the daily committed life of a disciple who is conformed to the Word of God. That is a miraculous spiritual work that cannot be underestimated. So here are two affirmations. The Spirit does not give new meaning, but helps the interpreter see and understand what was already there in the communicative act. Now, I can't explain for you exactly how that works. I can only simply say is the same God that will bring His Word to you and convict you of its importance, and conform you to its message, is lovingly participating in your own reading of it. And I say that just from, I didn't give any scripture examples, which makes me a bad biblicist, but I could have given numerous texts that just describe the way God's Spirit is involved in our regular reading in Christian living, and this, this would be an example. Second affirmation, since the Spirit lives within the Christian interpreter, 
He also helps the reader conform to the exhortation of the text. I'll tell you what, I mean, and I'm talking to a bunch of Presbyterians. One of my favorite commentators on the role of the Spirit in interpretation is John Calvin. And I mean, it would be worth reading some of the stuff he says. I mean, if you shoot me an email or ask Gray, maybe he knows you can find a section on that. But there's, just a, there's a couple sections, maybe even in book two, where Calvin talks about those things, and I think it's rich, where he really, really shows kind of a common grace, special grace, collaborative work, and the work of the Spirit. I think it's helpful. So at least you can see that when we regard to the Spirit, the entire interpretive process from start to finish involves not just the interpreter, but also the Spirit of God. Any questions about that? Any thoughts before we move on? All right, section, uh, the eighth section, and it's called Interpreting the Bible as a Grand Story. In, in this theme, or in this section, I just want to point out just the beauty of, and the, and, and the, and the importance of seeing the Bible as a whole story. We've spent a lot of time looking at individual texts, right? We looked at Philippians, the end of Philippians. We looked at Luke 15. We looked at John 3. If we had more time, I, I had a bunch of other texts. I was going to look through 1 Samuel 3. I was going to take you through Luke 7, Matthew 16. We just don't have time for all those. Um, but, but we could have looked at more and more individual texts. But you need to always be reading the Bible in light of the whole. Right? You're always reading it in light of the whole. You could even say that everyone's life, everyone lives according to a story. Our lives are shaped by some kind of story. People love stories. They love narratives. Man, my kids are still like this. I mean, I got a 13-year-old, and when I'm telling a story to my little six-year-old girl, and I'm laying you know, next to her bed or something telling her a story at night, I'll kind of look back and peeking inside the door of my 11 and 13-year-old boys. My six-foot-one 13-year-old with size 14 shoe still sticks his head in to listen to the story about the monster or the wolves. Or, like, we love stories. Like We're story people. And it's not surprising that God, in, in, his, in his kind of accommodation to us, didn't just tell a bunch of individual stories like in the teachings of Jesus, but actually told one comprehensive meta-story, like a meta-narrative that is the story above all story. It's a comprehensive account of the whole of creation. Like God didn't just tell a story about one little farmer or one little country like Israel or one little group of people like Christians. He told a story about the whole planet from start to finish, from creation to new creation. He told a story that was normative, which means it's, it's true. One author says this, a story is the best way of talking about the way the world actually is. A guy named Leslie Newbigin says this, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life, is, my life story is a part? To me, that's one of the most beautiful things about Christianity. Maybe that's the only way that Philippians 4.13 can be understood. How can I find contentment in Christ? when something is lacking, because I know my life is part of something bigger. That my life is sustained by something bigger. How can I tell you the story about, if you were there for the, on, the, on what was it, Thursday, when we talked about the ascension, if some of you were there, and I talked about the story of my friend Chad, who died of cancer at 29, and his wife, who kind of walked through that process. How can any way she have hope 
with three little kids and one in the belly, number four, how can she have, even in the midst of real loss and pain, a worshipful trusting in God if she did not know that God's story talks not just about life, but about life after death? That's the only way. So even as you're reading individual stories, let them be understood and explained by the larger story. The Bible, the Bible tells one unfolding story of redemption against the backdrop of creation and humanity's fall into sin. And it's a universally valid story. So I ask this question, is the unity of the Bible ultimately a theological starting point? Oh, I, answer, I answer in three ways. Yes, sure it is. Because interpretation is theological. Our acceptance of the unity of the Bible is not an empirical matter based on an examination of the apparent coherence of the texts. It is primarily a theological conviction based on what God reveals of Himself in the Gospel. So yes, it is theological starting point. Number two, empirically, the Bible reads like a coherent story, yet not a unified narrative. Do you know what I mean by that? Like It's not like Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22 is just one continuous narrative. It's actually a whole bunch of collection of narratives that tell one bigger story. In fact, not even all of Scripture is narrative. And often narrative texts can contain non-narrative material like law in Exodus or poetry in Genesis. Yet in the Bible, even non-narrative works are settled within the larger story told by Scripture prophecy told within the story of Israel, or the epistles within the story of emerging Christianity. A second thought on this one would be that Scripture does not tell a single story in the way that a novel or history does. There's a wide variety of kinds of storytelling and historiography, but the basic structure of Scripture, of, of its story, is creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Like, let that be the four-chaptered story of all of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And the redemptive aspect is multifaceted and complex, stretching from Genesis 3 all the way up through Scripture. And yet those four chapters summarize well the grand story of the Bible. Third, regarding the unity of the Bible, the, the Bible has some unified themes. Call, consider it like the sails of Scripture that move the story along. And there's two of them, just two major themes. I mean, there's, there's dozens I could have chosen, but there's two big ones. One is called kingdom, and one is called covenant. Kingdom is the all-embracing framework which establishes God's rulership over all creation. And you see this theme of the kingship of God all over the place. Covenant is the administrative instrument by which God rules His kingdom and saves His people and guides. In fact, notice you'll see in the Bible, Jesus is called both Savior and Lord. In one sense, the word Savior is referencing the covenantal nature of Christ's work. And the Lordship of Christ is emphasizing His kingdom reality. That Jesus is both Savior and Lord. The last thing I'll talk about this is just how the Bible answers these big 
public questions. The Bible answers questions like, who are we? We're humans. What what does the Bible say? We're, We're made in the image of the Creator. We have responsibilities that come with this status. We are not fundamentally, get this, my Indonesian brothers and sisters, we are not fundamentally determined by race, by gender, by social class, by geographical location, nor are we simply pawns in a determinist game. We are the children of God. How beautiful is that? Where are we? We are in a good and beautiful, though transient world. The creation of the God in whose image we are made. We are not in an alien world as the Gnostic imagines, nor in a cosmos to which we owe allegiance as to a God as the pantheist would suggest. What is wrong? Humanity rebelled against the Creator. This rebellion reflects a cosmic dislocation between the Creator and His creation. And the world is consequently out of tune with its created intention. I couldn't help but when I walked into that big mosque in Jakarta a couple days ago and I saw all these people praying or worshiping, that they are worshiping the wrong God. Fourth, what is the solution? The Creator has acted, is acting, and will act within His creation to deal with the weight of evil set up by human rebellion and to bring His world to the end for which it was made, namely, that it should resonate fully with His own presence and glory. This action, of course, is focused upon Jesus and the Spirit of the Creator. Let me just spend a few minutes looking at a text that emphasizes the big story. Let's stay in the Gospel of John. Turn with me to chapter 18. John chapter 18. So regarding this big story, one thing that you'll notice is that you're not only supposed to interpret individual texts in light of the whole story because the whole and the parts are intimately related, you're also going to see that Scripture intentionally echoes or connects to the larger biblical story. So individual texts are well aware of the larger biblical story. And you see something very interesting in John 18 to 20. We're not going to read all three chapters, but I want to show you there's a theme that is present in there, and it's the theme of a garden. So look at, look at verse, verse 1 of 18. This is the betrayal scene. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, this entire scene now takes place in a garden. Now, you have to know something about John that some of you already are well aware of. The beginning of John started like what book? It started like Genesis. In fact, even if you look closely at the beginning of the book, notice I'm doing the same thing in John with, with the beginning of John in its direction for the rest of the story as I did with the Nicodemus account. Like the beginning with darkness and light, I'm connecting that to the night and see. When, 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 when John started in John 1, it very much sounded like Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, John 1, 1 through 5 and Genesis 1, 1 through 5 almost sound like the same story light and darkness, this creative element, it is, it is immediately there. There's even in the first like chapter in a few verses into chapter 2, there's even like six days being described. 
like on the next day, on the next day, on the next day. Like literally the first six days of Jesus' ministry are being described in the beginning of John. There's numerous connections to Genesis, but nowhere is this clearer, in my opinion, other than the beginning of John, than there is at the end of John. In 18 through 20, there's this garden mentioned. Now notice what the text doesn't do. It mentions the location of the garden is in Kidron Valley. Notice that. Like it wants you to know that, but it doesn't tell you anything about the garden. In fact, it keeps calling it a garden. It doesn't tell you where. It doesn't tell you how big it is. It doesn't give you a name of a garden. Yet several times earlier in the gospel, the gospel would name the name of a place, like the Pool of Siloam or something earlier in John. Like when it names something, it's significant. But sometimes when it doesn't name something, it's significant. Like with Mary, it doesn't talk about the mother of Jesus because it wants you to think not of Mary the person, but the office, the role of mother. What is the role of garden? Now then, let Genesis be there. You have a scene where God is betrayed, right? It's a powerful scene, which almost sounds like another garden and another garden story back at the beginning of the Bible. Now, you might think that would be, okay, easy enough, betrayed in a garden, but does the garden disappear eventually? No. You go to John 19, and you're reading about the crucifixion, and then go, go, to, go all the way to verse 40, and there's, there's remember, Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus. Oh, 41, sorry. Now in the place, 1941, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a... Well, interesting, isn't it? Like, this garden keeps showing up. It's never named. It's never explained. Just this simple garden theme. And then by the time you get to... John 20, where does the whole scene take place? In this anonymous garden. Why is it anonymous? Right? I'm thinking how we're not, we're not only here reading theologically, right, but we're also reading in light of the larger story. This anonymous garden is meant to push you to see that Jesus is now like the second Adam in the second biblical garden who is completing and fulfilling the work of the first Adam in every way. Just as God was betrayed in the first garden, so there was a betrayal in the second. But this time, Jesus as the Adam is faithful. Just as there was wrath declared in the first garden, so the wrath of God in this garden, the second garden, is poured upon the representative of humankind. And just as... Death came out of life in the first garden. So in the second biblical garden, life comes out of death. In fact, I think in John 20, the scene with Mary Magdalene starting in verse 11 is so important. Let me, let me flesh this out a bit for you. 2011, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, stop there for a second. Oftentimes when someone's reading the Gospels, they'll remember, you may know this too, in one of the other Gospels, only one angel was mentioned, right? So it is so tempting for people when they see this Gospel has two angels to want to try to reconcile the distinction of 
Was there one angel or were there two, right? Almost like we do an act of apologetics rather than interpretation. But I want you to listen carefully to the words in the text and think through Old Testament, think through full biblical story. What are you hearing? She saw two, verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. There is something in the Old Testament that had two angels, one at the head and one at the feet. It resided in the Holy of Holies. Do you know what that was? Ark of the Covenant. Does everyone understand what I'm saying here? If you were to go to the Old Testament and see the depiction of the Ark of the Covenant, there was something called at the top of the Ark, the Mercy Seat. The mercy seat is where the sacrifice was offered in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. Holy of Holies meaning this sacred, whole, set-apart place. Priests would enter only once a year. On each end of that mercy seat was an angel, one at the head and one at the feet. What is John prescribing? What is he explaining? He is now describing that the new mercy seat no longer resides in the Holy of Holies in the temple, but has now been located in a tomb. Think about the application of that for a minute. It's kind of like God said to evil and, and all kind of challengers and human sin, listen, you don't need to come into my home court for this battle. I'll go under your home court. In fact, I'll go into a tomb and I'll beat you on your home field. In a, in a, not in a sanctified Holy of Holies. But in this set-apart place is the mercy seat. And even the depiction of the angels in the tomb is resonating theologically with that larger biblical story and the truth of the work, redemptive work of God. But there's more. They, they ask your woman, why are you weeping? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And she's like, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Notice how there's mass confusion in the disciples and in Mary Magdalene as well regarding what all this means. Having said this, 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. So notice the narrator wants you to know it's Jesus. And then it tells you what she thought he was. So notice that. Having said that, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, note that, the gardener. The narrative wants you to know simultaneously, by its own account, that Jesus is the person standing there, but yet Mary thinks he is the gardener. Who was the first gardener? Adam. Adam was called in Genesis to cultivate creation. Adam was called to be the first gardener in just a fitting display of the beauty of, this, of this, this gospel that is resonating the full biblical story. Every single account of Jesus at the end of his ministry in John is resonating with major themes found at the beginning of the biblical story. So that, that Jesus, in one sense, Jesus was not the gardener of that particular garden, but in another sense, in the anonymous biblical garden, Jesus is the gardener. He is the one who fulfills 
the image of God, the identity of humanity and their role in creation, and is now creating in this new creative work, this new humanity, who by faith in his name and in his work are participating in his co-creative work. And notice how theological this gospel is. And notice how we would be mistaken if we read this as a mere event and we didn't focus on the textual description and see those larger themes in the text. Any comments on any of that? Any questions or thoughts? All right, one more thing and then we're done. Thanks for hanging in there. Contextualization, last, last section. I use the word contextualization instead of application. Contextualization is a word that comes from missions and missiology. The term describes the process of packaging the message of the scriptures, packaging the gospel and other biblical truth in ways that are relevant to the diversity of modern cultures. So once we grasp the theological meaning of the text, once we understand it, the meaning and the larger story, then we package it in and for a particular culture and a particular people. Contextualizing biblical truths requires interpretive bifocals. And we've mentioned this a little bit already. First, we need to look at the textual world itself to learn what is the communicative action. What is the communicative intention of the text? But then we need to look at our own world. We need to understand our audience. So we have to know both biblical and modern worlds in order to bridge the difference. And here's four questions to check our contextualization. One would be coherence. Does the application of the text, does your application flow out of and fit the textual message and communication? So does it fit the text itself? Or is your application something you're trying to force to your people that isn't coming from this text? Second is purpose. Does the application align with and contribute to the textual message and, and contribution and communication? Is it contributing to the goal of the text, how you're applying it? So basically, in essence, you're, you're, you're making a judgment regarding what the thrust of the passage is saying. Now put it in reverse and go backwards and see if it just as cleanly fits right back into the narrative text itself. A third would be transcultural. Does the textual message relate to all cultures, not just mine? The one risk that we're imposing our own cultural understanding on the text is that it would work well in America, but not in Indonesia. Right? Does it, is this something that generally applies to the people of God? There might be different nuances or a way of appropriating it, but the thrust of the application is general enough that it would fit all God's people all, in all places. And second, some, an overarching question, how will I say what God is saying? So, so, so consider personal application. How do I share in the fallen condition, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe the text is pointing out my fallen condition. Maybe I'm doing John 3 and I say, I, I try to say to people in my church, how do we share? How do we not just stand here and say, get him, Jesus, get Nicodemus, Jesus, and not simply say, Lord, we're like Nicodemus. Like we are like Nicodemus in the way that we challenge you with our broken condition and our behaviors. 
How does this passage point me to Christ? How does John 3 point me to Christ? To see that even when I've rebelled against God by nature and by behavior, He graciously took the judgment upon Himself because of His love for me. And then analyze your audience. Think of your audience's fallen condition. This would be wonderful if you're discipling people, mentoring people, small groups or community groups, other kind of Bible studies that you're doing for pastors as they're preaching and teaching from God's words. Analyze your audience. What is the fallen condition of your people that this text is directly addressing? That Luke 15, for example, is one for me. I think oftentimes my church needs to hear about the older brother way before they need to hear about the younger brother. And I don't want to deny the younger brother's role, but in my church context, I want to make sure that they know about the older brother. Because they can be real good at judging the world and criticizing that rather than showing the kind of love of the world that God clearly shows in John 3. How does my audience need to see the redemptive solution of the text? What are, my, what are the heart longings of my people, my audience, that this text is probing at? Or how about false beliefs, security in money, security in identity, security in education, security in a relationship or romance? What are the false beliefs that this text is challenging? So I give you kind of just like a, an overall summary is the goal ultimately of the interpretive task is to develop the message's big idea that is these things, faithful to the Scriptures, obvious from the passage, related to fallen condition, connected to Christ, and engaging the heart and the mind. Dudes, I covered a lot. Can I call you dudes? There's there's a a lot in there. Um, I, I hope that it gave you some good principles to think about. We looked at several texts. I hope that it gives you a bit of an understanding. We started with the big picture, remember? Focus on the context, the historical, literary, and redemptive. Focus on the content. Focus on the text. And then go to the task of contextualization. Under contextualization, what's to say about God? What's to say about humanity and fallen condition? And what's to say about redemptive solution? Brothers and sisters, read your Bibles. Like I hope, I hope is that rather than this exercise makes you think that everybody needs master's degree to be able to read scripture that you're just motivated and it's not a bad thing to get a master's degree but i hope that you're motivated to be just faithful readers of god's word that there's something exciting about seeing the depth and the reality i did choose examples especially in john that are more complex because they showed multiple nuances of interpretive tasks that were useful and more comprehensive. Not every text is as complex as a John 3. But I want you to see how deep Scripture can go and, and balance well, right? I can, that tension is present here, right? Balance well being a Reformed church with these doctrinal, confessional categories, yes, but also being Bible readers. And let those two things be your right and left leg. They're the right and left leg. Your confessional leg that balances and stabilizes is, is, is then motivating a regular and deep reading of God's Word as written and directed by the Holy Spirit. So I hope that's there. Any kind of questions or comments you want to make before, before I step down? Anything? Yes, sir.
Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I wonder if it's more like this. So yeah, I mean, if, if you're doing something formalized or you're teaching, I can see thinking through context, content, and contextualization is, is being faithful to the task you're called to do. But hopefully those skill sets become just innate habits. Like you're reading through the text, and like with multiple lenses on, you're thinking to yourself, is there any, you're not even, you're not even like going step by step, but when you see something historically seemingly significant in the text, you note that. And you're not letting that be, you're not letting yourself be ignorant to that or ignoring that. You're not just trying to create your own meaning of the text, but you're letting the text push you to say, okay, why even mention that name or that? Maybe that's significant. Now, you might not have time to sit down with a Bible dictionary and a couple commentaries, but the point is you're drawn into the, you're letting the text take you by the hand and lead you where it wants to go, that you're being serious with God's Word. So I guess this, in summary, would be, I would hope that these skill sets, these principles, would just become innate habits that you're not thinking about all the time. Like when the first time you ever drove a car, you, you thought, put it in foot on brake put into drive, right? You, but you don't do that anymore. You just get into the car and you go. Uh, or a bicycle. You're not thinking about all those things. You just hop on the bike and you go. Um, hopefully they become habitual so that innately you're showing a reverence for the context of God's Word, for the content of God's Word, and even for the way that it's contextualized without necessarily thinking through 25 steps. But you're just simply aware of good habits of appropriating it for the sake of honoring the text and letting it be in charge and you being a disciple underneath it. I hope that helps. Yeah, another, yeah. A Trinitarian set of questions. You guys are so confessional. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a good question. I, I, I don't think there's any magical thing about that. I mean, sometimes you just, you're, I, for me, I try to have a daily habit of reading God's Word. I put it on, it's on our kitchen table at home. So I'll sit there, I'm eating breakfast. I mean, I've got three kids. One's probably climbing on me. One's fighting with the other one. I might get four minutes. Seriously, I might get four minutes and I read through a psalm or I might get a half an hour. And those are just very different readings, and they're, and they're going to be. Or one could be numerous interruptions, even if it's a full half hour. But I, I just think I'm trying to be in God's Word. Now, if I'm preparing a sermon, I'll, I'll make more focused time. I'll Fulfilling the office of the pastor elder, I'm, I would adjust and make sure that I'm being as faithful to the task as possible. But in my daily life, I don't think this has to do with, like, the Spirit's helping me more in this moment, or I'm more obedient in another 
I just think there's just a, there's a complexity of life that I just want to be regularly engaging with God's Word. And I just realize that some days that'll, that'll barely ever happen. Other days I might have time to read through all of 1 Samuel. Um, but that's, that's more rare than the norm. But just there's a lot of reasons why that would happen. Just to generally be attentive to God's Word, to be prioritizing God's Word, and to be learning to be faithful to God's Word. That's all the advice I would give you from, from what you're saying right there. What's your... What's your Trinitarian third question. Yeah, I, I, I read I'm reading I easily, easily read more pages per year non Bible than Bible. I mean it's a no brainer. Um, and I, I, I just, like I said, I try to devotionally, not with a guilt-ridden works-based, but it's just a worshipful response. I try to regularly read God's Word in the mornings, and I might spend four hours or two hours or 50 minutes that night reading something by some theologian somewhere. That just happens. And I'm, I'm just, I'm not feeling this like guilty pressure or I can only read certain things. It's all part of me being a Christian and reading and learning and my work which involves theological reading as well. Um, I just think you should feel a freedom. Christian liberty. Adopt the principle of Christian freedom and just say, Father, help me to be faithful to your word. Help me to be balanced in my life and help me not to be works-based in this process, which so easily happens. In my tradition, in the broader evangelical American tradition, people, if they don't read their Bibles, they feel like they're not good Christians. Like that's totally challenging the work of the gospel. And so I fight against that, even though I want to encourage faithful reading of God's Word. I don't want to do it so we make a bunch of little Pharisees, right? And so just trying to be faithful and, and, and finding uh, uh, habits that reflect the subjectivity of my walk with Christ, but that are living under the gracious, objective work of God who sits at the right hand, Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me, and I could not be closer to God if I were speaking the tongues of angels and reading the Bible 24 hours a day, right? And I just want to balance between the objectivity of my position in Christ and the subjectivity of my command to rightly worship Him in, in with my being and feeling freedom in that. So enjoy your Christian free freedom as you worship and, and read His Word. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, that's that's a good question. So the first thing I would say is one mistake you could make is we can, like, we can feel a pressure individually that we alone are feeding ourselves, which would be a mistake because now we've divorced ourselves from the role the church plays. So the first thing I would say, the first step to rightly sitting under God's word is to go to church regularly. Like seriously, like the first thing I would say is regularly go to church 
and be, and, and be sitting under the word and sacrament of your local church every Sunday, Lord willing, every Sunday, right? I'm not saying you can't be sick or travel. I'm saying that you are a regularly participant member sitting under the word and the sacraments of God every single Sunday, Lord willing. Like that, if you're already doing that, you are like 90% there. The other thing I would say is just develop a worshipful, balanced, reasonable mode of spending personal time in God's Word. Avoiding, at least in my culture, as I mentioned earlier, that pharisaical pressure that if I'm not praying on my knees for 45 minutes a day and reading for an hour, I'm not close with God. Right? That totally emphasizes the subjectivity of our faith and not the objectivity of our faith. So that balance there means I just want to regularly be. And, and if I, I might maybe, maybe like I'm working in something in the Old Testament right now, I might, I might spend a month in 1 Samuel. Because maybe for that season, I'm just wanting to really go deep. So it's kind of like a swimming pool. Like there's going to be some times you go swimming and you're in the deep end. There's going to be some times that you've never got your head under the water. But you're still swimming, Right? So enjoy the, the freedom and wrestle with God's word. The only thing that I would say is, in a reasonable way, try to let every single text direct you to its meaning. Like, practice what your Sundays are doing. So you're, you, 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 you hear all this, and you might maybe even feel a little overwhelmed with the magnitude of what you could try to do in interpretation. But you just simply, three things. You take the context seriously. You take the content seriously. And you try to contextualize in a way that fits the text. Bloop, bloop, that's it. Three steps. And you, that, that, could, that could take you hours or that could take you 10 minutes. You know, and if we had more time and, and, and maybe we could on like Sunday or something, we'll just say, hey, you pick a text and I'm going to, in five minutes, I'm just going to, five minutes, no preparation, nothing. I'll just, we'll read it together and we'll think through some ways that we honor context, content, and contextualization. I think that's actually really, really doable. And you could do that so you write a PhD dissertation, or you could do that so you devotionally try to hear God's word and respond accordingly, right? I mean, so really just try to have those three, those three C's, context, content, and contextualization, kind of be guiding your devotional reading. And I think you can do that in five minutes. I don't think you need to do it in 50 hours. It doesn't have to be a master's thesis and we put a diploma in your hand. It really could be something that you're just sensitive to the text, you're aware of its movements, you read it closely, and maybe for a, you, you spend a couple days in a text because you only have 15 minutes and you kind of want to spend 45 minutes in this text or a half an hour. And so the next day you come back to the text and you, you're just meditating on it, right? It's not fast food. You read it. You pray for a moment. You go back to the text and you read it. You see a word or a phrase and you stop and you think. The rest of the day you're working, you're dwelling on those words here and there. They come to mind. You see a Christian brother for lunch. You say, hey, have you read Luke 16? Hey, no, let's read it real quick. I just want to hear what you think about it because I'm kind of thinking about it. And, and, and you just enjoy God's word like a savory meal that you're learning from, Right? You're already weekly under the word and sacrament of your church. You're already doing everything the Bible prescribes. And now you're just praying unceasingly. Oh, by the way, I think in many ways, praying, reading the Bible is a form of prayer. It's a, it's a mode of communication between you and God. So that praying unceasingly, just dwelling, it's just there. 
a text on my kitchen table just open. And maybe I'll come home and have lunch with my wife and I'll sit at the table and she goes to the bathroom or something for a moment and I just pull the text and I just read a couple lines again. But I don't feel like I have to have note and paper and a big lexicon and books around me. I'm just soaking in. Just like with my wife, I can have a romantic weekend with her or I can just get four minutes before the kids come home and we can just talk for a couple minutes and just say, hey, you know, I love you. See you tomorrow. Or what, you know what I mean? Just, but it doesn't have to always be these, this massive thing. It can just be this natural aspect of being in a meditative mode with God's Word regularly. And I just recommend use the principles of context, content, and contextualization to help you make sure that the text is guiding the process. And the God who wrote the text is the object of what you're looking for and not your circumstances or your personality. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good observation. So yes, uh, those are not inspired. Those are there, right? Uh, the verse numbering, the chapter numbering, none of that was part of the original text. All of those were added to be helpful. And to be fair enough, chapter and verse numbering is helpful. One mistake even with chapter numbering is sometimes one chapter will end or they'll call it over and they start a new chapter and it really probably the scene was still going. The other risk with the chapter divisions, I'm not even talking about titles yet. The other risk with the chapter divisions is it makes you think in sections and not the whole book. So you start John 3, you're not thinking John 2 because you see a big three there, right? And, or you see a section heading, right? You need to remember it was all written as one flowing story. The other, and, and then headings are the more dangerous. It's, overall, it's meant to be helpful. It's meant to just give little categories. So there's nothing wrong with it. But, but personally, I don't necessarily always uh, worry about those section headings. Even with me, like when, when it says prodigal son, which son? Oh, that's a big question. And should it say sons instead of just son? I think so, right? So the, the heading can mislead you in regarding the content. So to be honest with you, 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 it might not be a bad practice to generally try to just go to the text and not be totally driven as if that one, two, or three word summary is actually getting to the main thrust of the text. It might be illuminating one aspect spoken about, but it, just don't even worry about that and just wrestle with the text yourself. But there might be times, as I was saying at the beginning, that you might actually, like 1 Samuel 3, I think for the, 1 Samuel 3 actually goes to 4.1. So I would have 1 Samuel 3 go one extra verse and 1 Samuel 4 start in verse 2. But that's not how it was divided in the 12th century and I don't think we're going to change it, right? And so that's what we live with. But just be aware of that, that those are kind of man-added elements to try to be helpful. Generally they are, like a railing, but not all railings are always the right height or convenient to help you walk well. And most of the time you can walk without a railing and I would say do so. Does that, get, does that answer your question? But you're right. It can give you 
it can give you an image of context or content that actually might not be as precise as you think. So not that you're distrusting it, but just be, enjoy the task of saying, I'm going to discover this for myself. And don't even be afraid in your Bible to not maybe cross it off, but add a subnote or the prodigal sons or parentheses older brother, right? Just so that the next time you go to Luke 15 for some reason, you're, you're thinking of that larger context that you've wrestled with in light of the story. Because I think as long as they mean prodigal son, older brother, I think that's a fine title. I just think most people hear that and they think younger. Well, that's def I mean, those questions are definitely bent and, and putting much more emphasis on the application part. And there's, there's a good, I guess I just want to be, I just want to be centered, right? I, I want the text to be in charge, which is why I'm too, I don't want to bring myself into it too quickly because I really want the text to be in charge. Um, I want the text to direct me, not me forcing the text's hand. So if I, if I, if I, if I one question of the text and then the rest of it is about how the text relates to me, then really I was the point, right? Who is the point of the text? God is, not me. So I, I want to just feel freedom to wrestle with the text a bit more. And, and if, if anything, if this encourages you guys to spend a bit more time in the text, uh, then do, do but, but not in a way that you're writing a master's thesis, right? But in, in such a way that you wrestle with the text but you feel freedom to do so in a short way so that you're thinking of context and you're thinking of content, but you're getting the contextualization. Meaning, what does this text say about God, humanity, and redemption in regard to me and my brothers and sisters and my country or my city or my church or family? What does this say about me? You should be getting into contextualization quickly. It shouldn't have to be long. But you may want to in some texts because they're harder. Spend a bit more time in content contextualization. Uh, ju just in the way that you might do a hike and some parts of the trail are completely straight and you're talking and you're jovial and some parts are even downhill and you're being a little slower so you don't slip and then some are straight up and you're actually not talking as much with your friends because you're trying to get oxygen because you're working so hard. The Bible's like a bunch of trails and some are just flat and smooth and the context and content goes right into contextualization. It's so rich. Then there are others that feel like you're climbing straight up. And I just don't think we need to panic or be mad at God or feel like the process is wrong or the model of devotions is broken just to say this is a text where some deep realities of God and life are being communicated and I'm going to have to slow up my pace up this steep hill because I can't walk as fast. Or other parts, I might be, not be fatigued, but it's pretty steep downhill and so I just walk carefully because I want to honor God and His Word and that part of the devotional trail requires that. So just feel, again, Christian freedom. Let the text be emphasized. Feel the freedom to do that in a variety of different ways. Try different things and try to do so regularly all within your confessional grounding and I think that'll work beautifully. Doctor.
was a canonization process. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you're, you're asking like a ton of questions. But uh, I mean, one thing I would say is I, I, would, I would hope that what you saw today was actually me just taking very seriously the Bible. So like the Bible's actually, remember, I, first thing I said, it's not just about the how. It's about the who, the what, and the why. And all of that is determining how I do it. When, when my first child was born, I was so freaked out I was going to break his little arms and legs when I put these like little pajamas on him, like I just was so, because he looked so, even though he was almost 10 pounds, which is a big clink baby, right? Um, I, he still felt so tiny. And I would take, my wife was like, what's your problem? You're taking too long. But I was so scared because I wanted to make sure that his little arms got in the pajamas and everything was right. So I didn't hurt his little body because he seemed so fragile. And it basically meant that I was just very sensitive to who he was and to the nature of his body versus a 13-year-old now who's six foot one, who I'm not too worried about his arms breaking anymore, right? I just would, I could go up to him now and slap him on the back or grab him, and I'm not thinking he's going to crack because he's a big, strong boy. The Bible is just, because I understand it's God's Word and that it's His authoritative Word, I just treat it in certain ways. So I would want to argue that all of the principles I gave you about taking the context seriously and the content seriously and contextualizing it in a serious way is actually just responding to the very nature of the Bible and how it is beckoning me to treat it when I know who wrote it, what it is, and why I'm doing it in the first place. That then gives me directions on the how. The same way that when I knew that this who was my baby and this what is a brand new infant and this why is we got to get pajamas on and put him in bed, I was very careful with his little arms almost in a silly slow way because I was careful with the object I was caring for. I think most of what I was saying to you today just fits that. It's not an extra biblical command. It's simply like when you are taking care and when you know what something is, you treat it accordingly. I think the other thing Gray was talking about, when you think about the con canon and the confessions and stuff, that all of those things, if this is maybe too summarized, but a confessional reading, the starting point, this understanding of the canon, all of that flows out of God's Word itself and is used as a supportive and supplemental aid to facilitate, again, the who, the what, and the why. It explains how we then read the Bible with a confessional framework because we know the who. We know what the what is, not just the what the Bible, but the subject matter of the Bible, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ that can be framed in a confessional way to help us read the parts in light of the whole. But there's a lot. I think you'll get another, another week or so on that, and Dr. Gray there can, can take that for you. All right. Hey, it's almost 4 o'clock. Thank you very much for your attentiveness.